Welcome to the Practical Employment Law Podcast, a podcast covering all aspects of American employment law. I'm your host, Mark Chumley. I don't know what is going on, but suddenly everyone seems to be interested in non-compete strategies. Maybe it's the economy, or maybe the worker shortage, but I've had an unusual number of questions recently about non-compete issues. In today's episode, I'm going to give you five thoughts about non-compete strategy. To begin, the questions I've been getting are both from employers who are wondering what actions they should take to enforce non-compete agreements against departing employees, and from employers wondering what risks they might be facing if they hire an employee who has a non-compete agreement with their former employer. So let's jump right in. Thought number one, non-compete agreements are usually enforceable up to a point. With a few exceptions like California, most states will enforce non-compete agreements up to a point. In the states that will enforce non-competes, they only enforce them to the extent necessary to protect a legitimate business interest. In other words, courts routinely alter the non-compete, so it is seldom enforced as written. If you have a non-compete that says an employee cannot compete for two years after their employment ends within a 100-mile radius of where they worked, a court may enforce it, but maybe only for one year and within 30 miles of where they worked or something like that. I often hear employers complain that courts don't enforce agreements as written, so what's the point in having them? Well, the fact is that non-compete agreements are disfavored under the law as a restraint on trade. Also, judges especially elected state court judges, don't like the idea of putting employees out of work, so they'll look for any way to avoid that scenario. That is just the nature of this area of the law, so employers considering legal action need to factor this into their analysis. Thought number two, state laws vary a lot. Several years ago, there were more states that would not enforce non-competes at all than there are today. Many of these states change their laws to enforce non-competes, but these things are cyclical, and the newer trend in recent years has been the passage of laws limiting enforceability. For example, Illinois recently passed a law limiting the enforceability of non-competes to employees earning more than $75,000 a year. Similarly, Nevada will not enforce restrictions against hourly employees. Many employers have older agreements that have not been updated since some of these changes went into effect, and many employers have allowed more remote work arrangements and have employees spread over more states than was typical even a few years ago. The offshoot is that employers need to look carefully at state laws before taking action. Also, the unicorn that many employers are looking for is a one-size-fits-all multi-state agreement. I call it a unicorn because it's exceedingly rare and may not exist at all. If it does exist, it might look and function more like a rhinoceros than a pretty unicorn. Thought number three. In some cases, the process is the punishment. A signed and properly supported non-compete agreement is enough to get you through the courthouse doors. Even questionable agreements can be the basis for litigation, and being involved in litigation is its own punishment. Litigation is a big distraction for any business and can be very, very costly for businesses in legal fees alone. I had a case a few years ago in the travel industry. My client had hired some employees from a competitor but had relocated the employees so they were not technically in violation of the terms of their non-compete agreements. They got sued despite this. And I should pause here and note that the new employer can be sued along with the employee. 
there's a claim called interference with contract. The theory is that the new employer was aware that the employee was not allowed to work for them because of the non-compete agreement and interfered with that agreement by offering the new employee a job. Many employers have the idea that it's strictly the employee's problem and get an unpleasant surprise when they're included in a lawsuit. Now going back to the case I mentioned, the old employer had a remarkably weak case but aggressively went after the new employer and the employees regardless. Ultimately, we were able to force a settlement, but I'll never forget that at the end of the case, my client's position was that they would not hire employees from this competitor in the future. So in a sense, the old employer's strategy worked. Also, a big reason the old employer was so aggressive was to send a message to its other employees about what they would face if they decided to go to a competitor. Now, you could argue that the old employer was abusing the legal system, but this is a gray area and hard to prove because no one admits to having improper motives for pursuing litigation and discussions with counsel are privileged. The point is that no matter how careful you are, you can still be sued. Thought number four. Consider the cost-benefit analysis. There is often a surprising amount of emotion in non-compete litigation. It's a good idea to put that aside and consider the costs and benefits of litigation before getting into a lawsuit. For the old employer, consider whether the loss of the employee to the new employer is actually hurting you. This will be a question that you can expect from the court. I've been surprised at how often I encounter employers who are upset at the employee leaving and eager to sue, but when I ask about the employee's performance, the answer is that they were a terrible employee or that the new employer is not even a threat. In those cases, cases, I question whether the cost of litigation is justified. Of course, if you forego enforcing non-competes, it can be used against you in future cases, so this can actually be a fairly complex analysis. For the new employer, consider whether the employee is worth the risk of litigation. Also, to what extent is the employee being brought on board for the purpose of gaining ground on the old employer as opposed to simply being a good fit for the position? Again, this can be a fairly complicated question depending on the nature of the business and the industry involved. On a related note, remember that the agreement is enforceable to the extent that you have a legitimate business interest in preventing unfair competition. I hear concerns from many employers about so-called poaching of employees, but in many cases, employers are now poaching employees from completely different industries. Maybe an employer in the soft drink business has a really great sales training program, and an employer in a completely different business, like automotive sales, recognizes this and targets employees who have completed the training. Obviously, the soft drink business does not like having its employees poached, particularly after investing in them by giving them the training. Unfortunately, a non-compete agreement does not help much in this scenario because the employee is not competing with their old employer. This is really more of an employment retention human resources issue than a legal issue. Thought number five, develop a big picture strategy for non-competes. Too often, employers concerned about employee attrition simply put an agreement in place without considering what comes next. I have a theory that about 75% of people follow an agreement that they sign. Another 10 to 15% might take a new job with a competitor, but when they're threatened with litigation, they back down. The rest will always ignore the agreements they sign and do, not, and do what's best for themselves. I should note this is based on my anecdotal observations and not any kind of empirical analysis, but I think it has some validity. 
So when employers are considering their big-picture strategy, they should consider whether and to what extent they are willing to litigate. If an employer decides that it's mainly interested in reining in the rule followers and those susceptible to threats, which is a large percentage of the total, the legal enforceability of the agreement is less important. An employer who has to invest a lot of resources in training or whose business is very relationship-driven may be more justified in taking an aggressive approach. In those cases, the enforceability of the agreement is much more important because those employers are likely to want to go into court and have it enforced. Of course, there are also considerations of administrative capabilities, legal resources, employee morale, and probably a lot of others specific to various businesses and industries. The takeaway is that employers need to think beyond simply getting employees to sign agreements and consider their broad strategy in this area. This has been the Practical Employment Law Podcast. Thanks for listening. Please watch for future episodes wherever you get podcasts. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave us a review. If you would like to contact me about any aspect of the podcast, my email address is mchumley at kmklaw.com, and my full contact information is in the show notes. This podcast was created for general informational purposes only and does not constitute legal advice or a solicitation to provide legal services. Although we attempt to ensure that the podcast is complete, accurate, and up-to-date, we assume no responsibility for its completeness, accuracy, or timeliness. The information in this podcast is not intended to create, and listening to it does not constitute an attorney-client relationship. Listeners should not act upon this information without seeking professional legal counsel.